Zivy Owens, and you're listening to the award-winning podcast, Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. Thanks so much for listening to my podcast. If you like what you hear, please follow me on Instagram at Zibby Owens and also at Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. Thanks so much for listening. Enjoy it. Today's sponsor is Alley Oop. We all know how important moms are for our kids, but did you know that one of the biggest influences on a girl's confidence and self-esteem is her dad? So if her dad says she's smart or fearless at sports or she can do anything she puts her mind to, she believes him, maybe more than her mom? I don't know. The praise and confidence a girl gets from her dad stays with her for life. There's a startup out of LA that is focused on just that. Started by a mom, it's called Alley Oop, and it provides a collection of fun challenges and activities that are specifically designed for a dad and daughter to do together as a team. There are no materials required, and you can access all the challenges virtually through the Alley Oop app, which you can download from the App Store. Just search for Alley Oop, A-L-L-E-Y-O-O-P. It's early access only right now, but if you use the code BOOKMOM, capital B for book, capital M for mom, BOOKMOM, all one word, upon sign-in, your favorite dads and daughters can check it out for free. I interviewed Susan Burton all the way at the beginning of the pandemic, and I think it was her first interview, and I met her a while back at an event I went to, actually an event I was moderating at the Center for Fiction, and I'm thrilled that now it's finally time that I can release her episode. Susan Burton's memoir, Empty, is really one of my favorite recent books, um, so I'm really excited to bring it to all of you. She's an editor at This American Life, where the episodes she's produced include 10 Sessions, Five Women, and Tell Me I'm Fat. Her writing has appeared in the New York Times Magazine, Slate, The New Yorker, and others. And she's a former editor of Harper's. Her radio documentaries have won numerous awards, including an overseas press club citation. And she received a grant from the Corporation from Public Broadcasting to do stories about teenagers. The film Unaccompanied Minors, which was directed by Freaks and Geeks creator Paul Feig, is based on one of her personal essays. Susan graduated from Yale in 1995. She lives in Brooklyn with her husband and their two sons. Welcome, Susan. Thanks for coming on Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. Hi, Zibby. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really glad to be here. You too. As you know, I'm like obsessed with your book, and I was so excited to get to meet you at the Center for Fiction a few months ago, which seems like a lifetime ago at this point. <laughs> I know. I know we were like shaking hands. I know. <laughs> that, was so, that was so nice. <laughs> I miss shaking hands. Well, your book is coming out in June, which is when this will air. So I'm hoping that by the time people are listening to this, we are all out and about. But at the time of recording, we are still in quarantine. So we'll see what happens. <laughs> in the meantime, can you please tell listeners what Empty a Memoir is about? Sure. So Empty tells the story of the eating disorders, both anorexia and binge eating disorder, that defined my adolescence and really my adulthood too, though I wasn't able to admit that until I was in my 40s. So what happened was like almost a decade ago, I signed a contract to write a book that was meant to intertwine the story of my adolescence with a cultural history of teenage girlhood. I'd always been like really drawn to the mythology of the teenage years, ever since I was like a 17 magazine obsessed middle schooler in 1980s Michigan. So I started writing that book, you know, marching along through the cultural history. And midway through the first draft, my eating disorders just took over the narrative. And I was paralyzed. I'd never told anybody about the binge eating. It was a secret I'd been keeping since my adolescence. I'd kept it even from my husband and we met when we were 17. So I didn't know what to do. I, for years, literally for years, I kept trying to write the book I'd committed to, The Cultural History. 
I was too scared to write about my eating disorders for a bunch of reasons, but in large part because to do so honestly would force me to admit that they'd never really gone away, that my obsession with food still defined my life. I was no longer binging, but my life was definitely still organized around food. But the thing was, I really wanted to write about them. Like it felt urgent and unresolved. And there was part of me that knew it was the story that I needed to tell. And eventually, with the encouragement of my editor, who's really wonderful, I was able to just like embrace that desire and stop denying what I wanted and write the book I wanted to write, which which in a way is like a metaphor for eating disorder recovery itself. Wow. So essentially your editor was like the first person to hear about all this. Is that right? Yeah. So that when I, when I turned in the, the first draft of the manuscript, my editor and my agent were the ones who were sort of the recipients of the secret that I'd been keeping. The editor whom I began with is no longer at the publishing house. So, so I have a, a different editor. She's, she's actually the one who, who years down the road gave me the push I needed to write the story I needed to tell. And after keeping it a secret for so long, what do you think, why do you think you trusted them? Why did you feel okay to, to finally write it and to share it with them first? What do you think it was? I had this urge to confess. I had this urge to tell. And I had so much shame about my own story that I think it was helpful to have somebody say to me, like, look, I see what's happening on the page and I recognize that that this is your story. This is the one you should tell. This is the one that feels most alive to me, too. So so there was that element of it. But I think also over time, as I started writing the urge to confess, like shifted to an urge to connect, Mm. like at some point. I understood how much secrecy, like habits of secrecy had been holding me back. I was very guarded. I was very distant. And I had some curiosity about what would happen if I did tell. What like what possibilities would open up to me if I was no longer hiding? And now you're telling the whole world. And now I'm telling <laughs> the whole world. But I will be totally honest with you. This is the first interview I'm doing. I'm still really learning how to talk about this stuff. It's still very new to me and it's very different. Um, So we met a couple months ago, but we don't know each other. And it's much easier for me to say these things to you than it is, um, for instance, to say these things to my friend with whom I went to the event that night because it's difficult to have had a secret from all the people around you and then to figure out how to have that conversation once one is ready to tell. That makes sense. I know shame is part of the motivation, but when you, well, first of all, in the book, your issues surrounding food started basically when you were born. I mean, you had like very strong food preferences and food aversions. And I mean, there was always something around food for you. Like I found myself wondering as I was reading, like maybe now she would have been diagnosed with some sort of, you know, not an eating disorder like anorexia bulimia as we would define it now, but some, you know how there are all these new uh, childhood disorder, do you know what I'm talking about? Like eating aversions and like, I feel like you had something like that with even your choices of the foods you were eating. 
Yeah. No, I mean, there's, there's, there is a diagnosis. I'm going to get it wrong, but it's something called like avoidant restrictive food, does acrid or arfid or something. And it's, it's beyond picky eater. And, and I, I sometimes do wonder if, yes, if I would have been diagnosed with a version of that. But yeah, I mean, as a kid, I like I never had a healthy relationship with food. I was really scared of food. You know, I was like the weird kid at the birthday party who like wouldn't want pizza or I wanted milk instead of Coke. And I, you know, at the time, I think I would have told you that I just didn't like a lot of foods. But looking back, I think it was a really early way controlling what I ate was like a really early way to control like what felt really out of control at home. My parents had a really troubled marriage and they divorced when I was 13. And I moved to Colorado with my mother and my sister. And it was a couple of years after that that the anorexia kicked in. But I think the the groundwork had been laid. The, you know, there, were, there, was something, there was something in me that there, there was a predilection for this. And do you feel, I feel like in, in other sort of eating disorder memoir things, somebody usually sees it and, and acknowledges and tries to encourage the person to seek treatment and there's an intervention and, you know, this all, this whole narrative around it. Why do you think that this persisted for so long? Like that it just could, could, that you could even hide it is so impressive for, you know, it's one thing when you're an adult, but when you're still essentially under the roof of your mother and, you know, in a school setting, for instance, what do you think? Did everybody miss it? I don't know. It's a, it's a good question. I mean, one, I think I was really good at hiding. I was really invested in hiding. On the one hand, my life was organized around the eating behaviors, but on the other hand, it was, it was organized around keeping them secret. So I was really good at hiding. Anorexia is, is visible. So I was anorexic in my mid teens and then later in my early twenties. And, and people did say things then, but for the largest part of those years of my adolescence and very early adulthood, I was binge eating. And like, that's not something that people can necessarily see. You know, could my mother have noticed missing food? Maybe, you know, could she, you know, I always felt that I would, I would scoop granola from like this jar we had. We were living in Boulder, Colorado, and we would buy this like maple nut granola in bulk from the health food store. (laughs) glass canister and I would scoop it out with my hand and like the oats would like sprinkle out through my fingers onto the floor. And and I always like for, for whatever reason that I felt was like my tell that I felt was my giveaway. Like how could my mother not notice when she swept the floor that these oats were there? But I think binge eating is invisible. And not only to like loved ones, but even to medical practitioners, you know, like it's often if a person is overweight, you know, the, the the size isn't necessarily ascribed to the behavior or a person might not even be, their weight might be unremarkable and still have this disorder. So aside from the scene with the granola, which I could totally picture now, but grabbing a handful of granola is sort of like, for me, a snack, not like, a bit, do you know what I mean? Like when are some, what are some of the moments where, and you described in the book, you know, but give, give one example of a moment where you were just out of control binging and in a way that you were ashamed and then hid afterwards, like paint, give us one scene. Yeah, no, totally. I mean, I think that's a super important distinction because I do think that like, that binge, we have, we, you know, even the way we like use the word as like binge watching TV mm-hmm. or like I binged on a batch of cookies, like that's kind of like a lighthearted, like one-off and binge eating disorder when you're inside it, it's, it's, it's a compulsion. So, so for example, in high school, I would, you know, a typical night, I'd be up in my room. I'd be waiting to hear my mother leave the kitchen. I hear her feet on the stairs. I hear the door to her room shut. 
I'd hear her sink turn on. I'd wait for all these steps to happen. And then I'd open the door of my bedroom. I'd creep back down the stairs. I'd flick on the light in the kitchen. I'd open the freezer. I'd take out a pint of ice cream. You know, I'd eat the ice cream down to the bottom of the pipe, scrape the spoon around the rim, throw the pint away, go back to the freezer, you know, pull out, you know, there'd be a Ziploc bag of frozen muffins, take out a muffin, eat it, you know, still frozen. And, you know, there's some frozen, there's some things you can pull out of your freezer that taste really good frozen, but these, these would be like oat brand muffins <laughs> because it was the eighties. Like they were not good frozen. You know, it, it wasn't about seeking seeking pleasure, it would continue. So this, you know, cl- opening the freezer, closing the freezer, opening the cupboard, closing the fr- cupboard, you know, blue corn chips. I remember eating blue corn chips and the the points of the chips scraping the inside of my mouth. I'd be, there was sort of a ferocity to it. And I'd start to feel sick. I'd start to feel my body expanding inside my clothes. I was always going all out because it was always the last time I was going to do it. And, you know, it sounds so unpleasant that you, you know, you wonder why someone would do it. For me, like, you know, in that kitchen on, you know, a weekday night, my junior year of high school, as long as I was eating, I didn't have to think. As long as there was food in my mouth, I didn't have to think about anything. I didn't have to think about any loss or any pain or, you know, the friend who hadn't called or the party, you know, which I'd stood on the sidelines. There was nothing but this, you know, and I'd finish, I'd go upstairs to my room, I'd be hating myself, I'd be swearing I'd never do it again. I'd get in bed. In the morning, I would wake up, my body would often feel sore. And, you know, the the explanation I had in my head was that it was like the work of the of the skin having to expand to accommodate all the food I'd stuffed in. You know, I have no idea if that's true, but that was how it felt. And I'd wake up and I'd swear I wasn't going to do it, but you know, within hours I'd be doing it again. And so it, it organized my life and did for years. I feel like it's also, how can you become really close to someone when you're hiding something so big? It's almost like a self-distancing tool that, you use to like keep people at arm's length, right? It's really true. And I don't think I realized, you know, there was, there was a point when I realized in, in my early forties, when I realized that the, the reverberations of the eating disorders, I sort of, I lived on the edge of anorexia for, for years during my adulthood. And I recognized that those behaviors around food were still really limiting me, but I don't think I recognized how much the secrecy was limiting me until I started to open up a little bit about it until I started to tell it and just realize how how guarded I'd become about everything, not just like this one particular thing, but you just develop habits of not saying like the truest thing. There's a distance from you and the world. And that that has been really transformative. I mean, you know, I had to tell my husband. I'd never, so we met, like I said, when we were 17, we've been together since we were 20. And I didn't tell him about the binge eating disorder until I had a finished manuscript. And I was really scared because if he'd been keeping a secret from me for 25 years, I would have a lot of complicated feelings about that. You know, what pain he must have been in. Why was he keeping this from me? But it has been really transformative. Like once you say the thing you think can never be said, like it opens up the possibility of of saying so many other kinds of things. Did you feel like there was something behind that secret that you really wanted to talk? Like, was that a front for something else? You know, like. That's such a good question. I didn't feel that 
then because I was so literal about what I needed to tell, so concrete. And I think that, that that's the thing about an eating disorder or any kind of addiction or compulsion is you focus on the thing itself rather than the underlying reasons for it. And it's in a way why I never really got better. I stopped binging, you know, in sort of midway through college, but not because I got help or got healthy. I just decided to sort of quit food and I became anorexic, which was just the same thing. It was just like another way of using food to manage feeling and then just sort of existed on its edge for for many years. And what happened when you told your husband? He was very, at first he didn't understand. He's like, I knew that already. I knew that. And I was like, no, you didn't. You literally did not. That's not possible. You didn't know it. Like, I think he just, he, so he was, you know, we've we've been together. So he was there for anorexia. So he like, he, he got sort of eating disorder in like a vague way. And I was like, no, honey, this is what binge eating disorder is. And I had to explain it to him. And I think it wasn't, you know, I'm, I think I was probably inarticulate and the conversation itself felt intense. I think it wasn't until he read the manuscript that he really understood. And then what happened? Well, he actually stopped reading the manuscript midway through. That was hard. He felt like it was really, it was just a lot to take in. And I understood, like I wanted to give him that space. And then he returned to it. And I think what happened next is I just felt like, you know, of all the people I want to know about this, like I want him to know, I want Mike to know. And it just felt so liberating to just come, just not have this thing like in this little box inside of me. Like I'd unlocked that. And I think it helped him like open up about stuff too. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah, I feel like as soon as you start sharing, I mean, what you get back is always a big surprise, (laughs) right? And, And when you keep things and probably for you, if you were keeping so much secret, there was probably more stuff that other people were keeping than, than most. Do you know what I mean? If, (laughs) <laughs> with all your defenses up and everything. Yeah, no, and, and hiding is really isolating too, is the thing. Yeah, it disconnects you from the world. It's really, it makes me sad. I mean, you're such, no, it's true. I mean, it's like, you know, you were just so handicapping yourself and you seem like such a nice person. And you know <laughs> what I mean? Like that you were going through all this internal suffering and hiding it for the world. It's just, it's heartbreaking, really. So I'm really happy that you've written your book about it. I mean, that is so, I mean, I'm sure people will tell you a million times, you're so brave, and but it's really amazing. And I, I, I get that you are doing this in a place of, it sounds like you have to, right? Like you've gotten to a point where this is the only, so the, uh, this is the only next step for you. But still, it's like, incredibly brave to come out and face all of this now. Well, thank you. No, that's really nice to hear. I mean, you know, writing the book is really, I see it as the first step in my recovery. Like recovery is an ongoing process for me. You know, at, at one point when I was still on the stage, when I wanted to write about it, but couldn't yet, I went to a therapist and I, you know, I'd gone to therapists over the years and really like literally did not mention eating and, and, and always left after the initial consultation, because even I understood that if I wasn't going to talk about eating, it probably wasn't worth it. So I went to a psychiatrist who specialized in eating disorders to force myself to, to say it, but I could not, I just, I, I could not get the words out. I, you know, I had habits of isolation that had been built up over so many years and I felt like to understand my story. I needed to understand it alone first. I needed to write about it. Writing had always been the way I'd made sense of my life. And I felt I needed to do that first. As soon 
as I finished the manuscript, I went back to therapy. And that has really been the most transformative part of the process for me. And, and now I see it that the most important thing that writing did was to get me to start talking, which is exciting. So tell me, give me a visual on what it was like when you were actually writing the book and you were like getting, tapping into all of these complicated emotional feelings. Like where were you, are you in Starbucks at this moment? Like where, where were you and how did it feel to have it all come out onto the page? I was in I was in various places. The consistent thing is I was usually I wait, I write very early. So I was usually in the dark at dawn. Sometimes this, so I had I had this particular like green spiral notebook that had been my high school journal and often after a binge I would write and I would write, you know, I'd write what I'd eat and I'd write how I felt. I'd write and write and write, which was which was in a way sort of a purge, I think. There there was something ritualistic about it. So often I'd have that journal next to me. I'd read an entry. It was so evocative. And and then I'd put it aside and I would try and re-inhabit the scene that I just read. So that was part of it. I mean, there was a lot of fear in starting to write about it because it, you know, like I think anybody, whenever, whenever we're writing, you know, hopefully we're writing about things that mean something to us. And this meant so much to me. I felt, and I felt that writing about it was the only way I could be understood. And I felt if I couldn't set it down the way I wanted to, there was no hope. You know, I, I had sort of this extreme apocalyptic, it was, it was really, it was really fraught for me. But once I was able to set that aside and just sort of channel it, it was, it was okay. And do you have any, did you have any fears about this coming out at work or in like your professional life? I did for a long time. And there was like a particular scene that was fixed in my mind. So every, so I'm an editor at This American Life. Every Wednesday we have a story meeting. We all sit around the room and there's, we all eat together. There's like 25 or 30 of us. And for whatever reason, I fixated on that Wednesday story meeting that as soon as my book came out, everybody would be watching what I ate and how I ate in a way that they hadn't before. You know, I don't think that's crazy. I think people will be more attuned to what they say about food, to to watching me eat. But mostly I feel, you know, I'm, I'm very close to my coworkers and I feel about them as I do about others. Like I feel excited to be able to talk about this and like strip away the layers that like maybe have been, you know, impeding relationships. Do you have any aspirations to become the person who goes around to schools and talks about your experience? Like, are, is that part of your hope to, you know, bring your message to more people to spare them what you've been through? Or is this just like your first step and we're, you're just going to get through this and then reassess? Like what's, what's coming next? What, what do you, what are your goals after this? I mean, for sure. I would, I mean, even, you know, even when I was a teenager struggling with this stuff, I, I always imagined, well, when I was a teenager, I imagined helping other teenagers. And now that I'm a woman in middle age, I do think that there are a lot of women in middle age who have eating disorders, whether there's things that have endured since adolescence or that have developed later. So I do, I would like to become an effective enough spokesperson for my own story that I, that I can do that. I don't know that I'm ready today. Right. <laughs> would love to be ready to do that. So I actually, I did my whole, like, I, I was a psychology major and I did my whole senior thesis on eating disorders. And I've always been really interested. I've had very close people in my life with eating disorders. And it's been a huge topic of interest to me, which is 
probably why I just adored your book so much. But I even recently wrote this article for Redbook. It was probably in the last five years because I noticed that so many of my grandmother's friends, and my grandmother is 96, they're still having issues around food. And I found myself wondering, wow, this, if you don't resolve it at some point, it does not just go away, right? Yeah. So there's a woman in her you know, old folks home who still, you know, like weighs herself every day and it, it beats herself up and talking, you know, I did all these like measures of who had eating disorders in the past and how they felt about food. And anyway, all to say it doesn't go away. So even the fact that you did it in middle age is better than say people who are in old age who have not conquered this yet. So anyway, it just doesn't, I, I just couldn't believe, I just had this belief that once you got old enough, people would just be like, whatever. But it's not true at all. <laughs> I know. I mean, I remember being at my grandmother's, you know, assisted living facility in Florida and and going to the dining room and seeing women, like women in their 90s with like gnarled fingers, like scooping out the insides of bagels. Like like that that thing was still happening. My, my own grandmother, when I visited her, you know, during the last weeks of her life and she was in bed and you know, at one point she said to me, oh, I wish I could get out of bed and weigh myself because she knew she'd lost so much weight and she just wished she could get on the scale one last time. So you're right. It doesn't go away. Wow. That's a, that's like a haunting image. (laughs) I know. I know. I know. I know. She was a wonderful, she was a wonderful, she was actually, and she, she was actually, you know, she was a wonderful baker and cook and, you know, food, food was very important in our family, which, which I also think is not uncommon when there's attention to food in one way, there becomes, you know, a pathology in another. So just two more last questions. I'm wondering what you would want to tell anybody out there who might be hiding something similar. And maybe this is their time where they're finally confronting it and thinking, wow, if she could do this, maybe I could do it. What would you say to somebody in that situation? And then I want to just know if you have any advice to writers in general, having just published this beautiful manuscript. Well, I do. I mean, I I think that, you know, a message I resisted for a long time was reach out to another person, get help. I do think that that is the most important thing that somebody struggling with an eating disorder or any kind of addiction or compulsion can do. It's not something that you can solve on your own. Whether that person you reach out to is a friend or a therapist or, you know, a, a mentor, that is, that's the advice that I would offer. And then as far as advice for for writers? Yeah, aspiring authors. Somebody who says like, I want to write a memoir. I'm ready. What advice would you have? Yeah. I mean, I think I might crib a piece of advice that a novelist friend gave to me that she in turn had cribbed from somebody who was a writing mentor to her, which is, what do you know that no one else knows? Write about that. And I think the, the, you know, it's not that you have to have some experience that is so unusual, but just what is deepest in you and write from that place and just trust that if you embrace your, you know, your deepest self, that, that, that will be interesting to other people too. I love that advice. That is so good. Thank you so much. Thanks for coming on this podcast. I hope as your first interview, it was okay and not too uh, <laughs> not too uh, intimidating or anything. But I'm so excited for Empty to come out in June. And thank you for taking the time to talk to me in quarantine now. <laughs> Thanks, Zibi. I really appreciated it. It was really nice to talk to you. You too. Okay. Bye. Bye. 
Thanks again for listening to my podcast, Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. If you liked this episode, please follow me on Instagram at Zibby Owens and at Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books and sign up for my mailing list at ZibbyOwens.com so you can always hear about the latest things I'm up to. Thanks a lot. Thanks to today's sponsor, Ali Oop, A-L-L-E-Y-O-O-P. Check it out at the App Store and start bonding with dads and daughters right away for free with code BOOKMOM, B-O-O-K, capital B, M-O-M, capital M, if that makes sense, BOOKMOM. <laughs> Thanks for checking it out. Thanks so much to Steve and Ryan at Texture Sound for the sound editing. And thank you to Morning Moon Productions for providing this fantastic intro and outro music. Thanks for listening. You could always email me at zibby at zibbyowens.com. Thank you.